This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam, or sometimes Alan Partridge on a stick. A huge thank you to this week's new supporters on Patreon. That's Dahlia Dennington and Maureen Lilliot. Really appreciate your support. I'm also delighted that today's case was researched by Chris Clark. He's a regular contributor to the UK True Crime Facebook group. And please search for his work on Facebook, where he posts as the armchair detective. Or go to Amazon and check out some of his books. Chris really knows his stuff, and he covers some fascinating cases. Today, we look at a wide-ranging story which are those centred on a brutal murder of a young girl. It covers many other issues from police techniques to the early adult life of the Yorkshire Ripper. But before we start, a quick word about the sponsors of today's show. I use a wordpress.com website and I reckon you should too. Your business needs an online home. It needs a wordpress.com website. You don't need to be a design expert or a developer, or to waste cash on hiring someone to do it for you, WordPress.com guides you through the process. Choose from hundreds of beautiful designs, and every plan includes a free custom domain name. Even better is that with a WordPress.com plan, expert support is always there to help you focus on what matters the most, growing your business. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash UK true crime to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash UK true crime for 15% off your brand new website. Wordpress.com slash UK true crime. As I've told you on this show before, I use Harry's products and I recommend them to my friends and my family. I love that everything is delivered to my door the quality is excellent, and that the shave is awesome for my delicate skin. As you know, I am a little delicate. I also love the attitude of the owners. Two best friends, Jeff and Andy, fed up of being overcharged for razors. So what do they do? Just moan? No, they started their own company to do it better themselves. Cool, huh? Get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £2.95. So support my podcast and get your trial set delivered to you. This includes a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash true crime right now. That's harrys.com slash true crime. Today we go back to June 1972. This saw the excellent T-Rex topping the charts with Metal Guru. Elton John was at five with Rocket Man. And at number 16 was the mighty Leeds United with Leeds United. Their cup final song ahead of Europe's premier football team's magnificent 1-0 thrashing of Arsenal in the FA Cup final at Wembley the previous month. Bit excited there, wasn't I? Back to normal. In the US, number one was the Staple Singers with I'll Take You There, 
but soon to be displaced by Sammy Davis Jr. with The Candyman. In Australia, top of the album charts was Don McLean with American Pie. In the news headlines this month, three members of the British Army were killed by an IRA bomb in a derelict house near Lurgan, County Down. Tropical Storm Agnes was upgraded to a hurricane and it made landfall in Panama City where it killed 128 people. And US President Nixon and his chief of staff agreed to use the CIA to cover up Watergate. Not such a great move, was it? In sport, in the Euro Championship final in Brussels, West Germany beat the Soviet Union 3-0. The Women's French Open tennis final saw Billie Jean King beat Yvonne Gulagong. And in golf, Jack Nicholas won the US Open at Pebble Beach, California. Judith Roberts was a 14-year-old grammar school pupil from Wigginton near Tamworth in the Midlands. Around 6pm on Wednesday the 7th of June 1972, she left her home on her green rally bike, wearing a flowered dress, a navy blue anorak, tights and black lace-up shoes. It was the last time that Judith would see her home. When she didn't come back when expected, her parents were worried sick about what might have happened and when their searches proved fruitless, they reported her missing to police at 10.30pm that night. Police with dogs helped by civilian volunteers, a mountain rescue team and RAF airmen and troops from Whittington Barracks searched throughout the Thursday and the Friday and into the weekend. On the Saturday at about 4.30pm, two soldiers, Private Gibson followed by Lance Corporal Trevor Steele, entered a ploughed field where they stumbled upon Judith's green-coloured cycle, laying in an overgrown thorn hedge some 16 feet from the field gate, with the front wheel protruding. A few yards away further into the field from the bike, Steele noticed a mound of twigs and hedge cuttings and a piece of blue-coloured material sticking out from it. The pile of hedge clippings totally obscured the body, of which only a hand was visible. Steele lifted the piece of cloth and he saw human hair covered with blood, and pieces of human flesh. His stomach turned at the horror of what he had just seen. The police and the Home Office pathologist were immediately summoned to the location. The pathologist reported that Judith was subjected to a frenzied attack and battered to death by being struck with one massive blow to the head. He concluded that this heavy blow which was dealt to the back of her head was so severe that it fractured her skull and damaged her brain. It would have had the desired effect of knocking her to the ground, rendering her immediately unconscious and death followed very quickly. The pathologist found the skulls fractured into 18 pieces and found that Judith was struck a number of times whilst lying prone on the ground before the killer, with her lying face down, removed her shoes and the bottom half of her clothing. There was an obvious sign of a sexual motive, but Judith was not raped. In these pre-social media days, It was hard for locals to hear about what had happened and all sorts of rumours emerged. It was reported in the local paper, the Tamworth Herald, a week after the murder, that police were making progress and that the murder weapon had been found, although the police would not say what it was. A fingerprint was found on Judith's bike and as a result a massive fingerprint operation of the local male population was undertaken and most of the local males volunteered to help the inquiry. The third strand of the investigation appeared to be that police were focusing their attention on tracing a dirty blue Ford Cortina car, a 1963 or 1964 model, which was seen near the murder spot, 
and also a red or maroon car and a white Triumph 2000. At the beginning of September, police issued three photo kit pictures of three men seen in or around the area during the evening of 7th of June. But there was no quick break for the police and the case remained in ongoing investigation. The laughter of children playing on their bikes and in the local fields was not heard anymore that summer of 1972 as parents kept a tight rein on their children, terrified that the killer could strike again. Some four months after Judith's murder, with the police no nearer to solving the case, local police were still interviewing people who'd been present nearby at the time of the murder. One was local soldier Andrew Evans, who'd been discharged from the Whittington Army Barracks on the very day that Judith had been killed. He'd now moved 40 miles north to live with his grandma, but on the 8th of October in 1972, he was interviewed as a matter of routine inquiries about his movements on the day in question. Andrew Evans had had an unsuccessful childhood and adolescence. He suffered from low esteem and a sense of failure that he just wasn't good enough. He had joined the army in the hope of making a successful career and proving himself. But unfortunately for him, he was discharged on medical grounds after suffering a severe asthma attack. He filled in a routine form saying where he'd been between 6 and 10.30pm on June the 7th, the night before his discharge. He said he'd stayed in the barracks and named three fellow soldiers who could verify that. Police called it as Grandma's house to ask him further questions because they discovered that two of the soldiers had left the barracks before June the 7th and they could not trace the third. This had a profound effect on Andrew Evans and that night he had vivid dreams. The nervous and socially uncomfortable 17-year-old who was also taking medication for his depression went to see police the following morning as he had dreamt of a girl's face and he wanted to see if this was Judith. Sobbing hysterically, he stumbled into a police station in Stoke and asked to see a photograph of Judith Roberts. The detectives who initially interviewed him believed that he was a fantasist and viewed his confessions as not credible at all. When officers asked him if he'd murdered Judith, he said, This is it, I don't know. Show me a picture and I'll tell you if I've seen her. But police said that he recalled details that could only have been known by Judith's killer. And eventually, after three days of interviews conducted about his parents, a suitable adult, solicitor or doctor present, Evans confessed to the murder. As the trial approached, Evans withdrew his confession, but this was too late and he faced trial at Birmingham Crown Court. At the trial, police told how during interviews... Evans described how he had dragged the victim off her bike and they'd rolled on the ground in the field. He later made a signed statement under caution, where the police stated, In this, he clearly implicated himself as the murderer. Many of the details in this statement accorded with the facts as they're known or later established, but some did not. The jury at Birmingham Crown Court accepted the confession he'd made and Evans was jailed for life, which was then changed to being detained during Her Majesty's pleasure. As you can imagine, somebody like Heaven struggled with prison. Labelled a child killer, he faced violence on a daily basis and staying alive became his main priority. It must have been a terribly miserable time for him. But his life changed in 1993 when Steve Ellsworth of Greenpeace gave a talk to inmates at the prison. Evans told him about his case and Ellsworth who was well connected with friends at Amnesty International, 
was astonished that he was still in prison and the campaign for his release began. Kate Ackester of the human rights group Justice took up his case, as did the eminent Norwegian psychologist Gisli Gudjonsson, whose research into false confession syndrome and his interviews with Evans were to prove vital. Four years after the chance meeting with Steve Ellsworth, and after spending 25 of his years in prison, in December 1997, Andrew Evans was a free man. Three judges at the Appeal Court in London ruled that the murder conviction of Andrew Evans was unsafe and he was allowed to walk out of court immediately. On the steps of the law courts in the Strand, his lawyers and family persuaded him to make a brief statement. Andrew edgily stepped forward and said in a slightly faltering voice, This verdict means that my long nightmare is finally over. For more than 25 years I've been held responsible for a crime I did not commit. I will always be in debt to those who brought to bring me justice, never doubting my innocence and supporting me through some dark times. My family and myself can now begin to be together and start to heal the wounds caused by my wrongful imprisonment. Speaking to the Guardian almost three years after his release, he told how he coped with the initial £100,000 he was given as an interim compensation payment when he was first released from prison. I started spending money like mad, he said. I'd give cab drivers £200 tips. I bought five computers. When one went wrong, I'd give it away and buy another. And my kitchen was full of God knows how many food blenders. If I couldn't be bothered to clean one or thought it was too loud, I'd get a replacement. He even bought himself 12 staple guns. They were a status symbol inside prison and hard to get hold of. He told of what made him confess to police, saying, I didn't have any real friends and was a bit of a loner. I couldn't read or write properly, was taking Valium for depression and was waiting for a medical discharge from the army. I was also eaten up with guilt. Perfectly normal feelings towards the opposite sex played on my conscience. I was a mess. He says to the dream in which he saw a hazy combination of images of women's faces convinced him that he was responsible for the death of the local schoolgirl Judith. By confessing, I thought I'd be able to rid myself of all the crap going on in my head, he said. Having now received £1 million in compensation, he was moving on with his life, although still having counselling for trauma. Andrew Evans was married, he brought a house, and at the time of the interview was looking forward to a Caribbean honeymoon with his new wife. But following his successful appeal, Staffordshire police said they'd no plans to reopen their investigation into the murder of Judith Roberts, as all lines of inquiry had been exhausted at the time. A spokesman also stated that investigators had followed correct procedure and there was never any question of misconduct by those officers. Hmm, as I seem to say every week, on this podcast we see some outstanding police work and some which is just, well, utterly appalling. I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions on this embarrassingly bad investigation. Oh, looks like I shared my view by mistake again. If the murder of Judith remains unsolved, who did kill her? The police still clearly think it's Andrew Evans, do they? I don't think many other people share that view. Could it have been a one-off opportunistic murder? Chris Clark and many others feel not, and suggests that this murder has all the hallmarks of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Chris, along with investigative journalist Tim Tate, 
has written an excellent book on this called The Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders. They believe that truck driver Sutcliffe, who lived in Bradford, Yorkshire, committed his crimes all over the country, with cases in London, Essex, Bristol and the Midlands. Let's take a brief look at the evidence suggesting that Sutcliffe killed Judith. Although the official Ripper murders didn't begin until after Judith was killed, by 1972 Sutcliffe certainly was displaying the behaviour necessary to kill and it can also be seen that he had the opportunity. Let's illustrate this by starting at Sutcliffe's first recorded serious crime when on a Saturday evening in early September 1969, the Stone in the Sock incident took place. It was actually a piece of brick where he used a blackjack kosh and had it been documented properly at the time, would have been a strong indicator for the future attacks of the Yorkshire Ripper and arguably stopped the escalation of murders and attempted murders where the mutilation of the victim was a highly significant factor. But let's not get too bogged down in the disaster that was the police inquiry into Sutcliffe. During this incident in 1969, Sutcliffe was out with his friend Trevor Birdsall in Bradford, Yorkshire, when Sutcliffe, who was a passenger in Birdsall's car, got out and followed a woman. Sutcliffe claimed that he followed, I quote, an old cow to a house somewhere and had hit her on the back of a head with a stone in a sock, and that the sock had fallen apart and the stone fell out. He removed the sock from his pocket and dumped its contents out of the window. But the woman he had attacked had noted Trevor Birdsall's registration number and the next day two police officers visited Sutcliffe at his home in Bingley in Yorkshire. Sutcliffe straight away admitted hitting the woman but claimed it was only with his hand. He was given a stern lecture and cautioned. The woman, who for her own reasons did not want to press charges for assault, besides being a prostitute, Her common-law husband was serving a sentence for assault. Within weeks of the police cautioning him about the the stone-in-the-sock incident, which was classed as an aggravated assault, Sutcliffe was arrested in possession of a hammer. During the early hours of Tuesday the 30th of September 1969, he was in the Manningham area of Bradford in Yorkshire, and Sutcliffe went out looking for any prostitute to attack. This time he was armed with a hammer and a long-bladed knife. He recalled at his 1981 trial, I were driving the old Morris Minor and I were looking for a prostitute. I knew this were the mission I had to carry out. The voices told me it wasn't good enough just to attack them. I had to do it properly. I had to kill. He was observed by the police sitting in his vehicle, deliberately trying to look unobtrusive with the engine running quietly and the lights off. When a police officer approached the car, Sutcliffe drove off at high speed. A search of the area was carried out and the policeman again spotted Sutcliffe's car a short distance away, this time parked and unattended with the lights on and the engine running. On closer inspection, the officer discovered Sutcliffe hunched behind a privet hedge within a private garden with a hammer in his hand. Sutcliffe told the officer that a hubcap had flown off his front wheel and he'd been looking for it and the hammer was to help him secure it in place. He went into Bradford Police Station and was wrongly charged with going equipped for theft instead of possession of an offensive weapon. He was photographed and fingerprinted and appeared at the magistrate's court two weeks later in the October and was fined £25. During September 1970, Sonia, Peter Suckler's future wife, began her three-year teacher training in London 
at the Rachel Milligan College in Greenwich, South East London. She started off doing painting, but then turned to pottery after a few weeks of arriving there. During the autumn and winter of 1970, Sutcliffe continued to drive back and forth along the M1 from Yorkshire to London, and this went on for a few months. And then at the age of 25, during the spring of 1971, Sutcliffe installed himself in a bedsit near to Sonia, and he was able to survive on what he earned from doing bits of motor mechanic maintenance and joinery. He had taken his toolbox in the car with him, and in his tools of trade, he'd have access to numerous tools that could be made into weapons, including hammers, saws and screwdrivers. Just the very type of weapons he'd amassed for the later official Yorkshire Ripper murder and attempted murder series from 1975 to 1981. During May 1972, just before Judith was murdered, Sonia suffered a nervous breakdown and was admitted to Bexley Hospital in London, eventually returning to Yorkshire as a voluntary outpatient, and Sutcliffe helped her with what was to be a very slow recovery, and this would continue up until May 1976. It was this turn of events that gave Sutcliffe the clear opportunity to murder Judith. While still working at Baird's television, Sutcliffe visited Sonia most weekends and holidays during 1972, up until that July. Where Judith was killed was very close to the M1 motorway, and Sutcliffe could well have been in the vicinity on a trip to see his wife, and as he'd been working nights, an attack would have been much more likely in daylight hours. Another factor is the murder weapon used to kill Judith, which was never discovered. It has been suggested that a heavy hammer like a walling hammer was used to kill Judith, where just one crushing blow caused the skull to cave in, as in the later October 1977 Yorkshire Ripper murder of Carol Wilkinson in Bradford, and in Sutcliffe's January 1978 murder of Yvonne Pearson. In Yvonne's case, her skull fractured into 17 pieces and was wrongly originally thought to have been caused by a rock until x-rays confirmed otherwise. The lack of further mutilation of Judith's body could have been due to the local activity in the area and the offender was disturbed in the middle of his attack and had to hurriedly hide both the body and the cycle. Sutcliffe used this partial hiding of his victim on several of his later Ripper murders and one in particular already mentioned was that of Yvonne Pearson during January 1978 when he attacked her with a walling hammer and hid her body under a settee on waste ground. Another during August 1980 was when Marguerite Wall's body was partially covered with grass cuttings and leaves. In an extract of Sutcliffe's confession statement concerning another attack and murder, that of Helen Reichter, during January 1978, he explained his actions. I then dragged her back in front of the car and may have hit her again before I dragged her back. I began gathering her belongings and threw them over a wall. After this, I pulled her to a place a few yards away where I thought that she wouldn't be found so quickly. When there, I got her covered with a piece of asbestos or corrugated metal. How Judith's body was found also suggests the hand of Sutcliffe. Judith was naked from the waist down, with the front of her dress and anorak pulled up over her breasts, which was a later classic ripper method, which still had a bra covering them. Underneath her body, the pathologist recovered her pants, tights and shoes. And then there was the car the police identified around the time of the killing. Police inquiries revealed that on the evening of Judith's murder, the lane in which she had cycling had been a hive of activity, 
and seven different vehicles had been seen on the lane during the time they suspected that she was killed and were sought for tracing. These included a Morris 1000 and a grey-coloured Ford Escort. Either of these cars could have been used by Sutcliffe as his normal runner was a Morris 1000 and he also had access to his future mum-in-law's Ford Escort. In a later attack on 14-year-old schoolgirl Tracy Brown, not far from where Judith was murdered in the Midlands, committed during 1975, Sutcliffe confessed to following the schoolgirl down a lane and walked with her for some distance engaging her in a conversation and winning her trust before attacking her. Her life was only saved by a passing car disturbing Sutcliffe. Is this what happened with Judith? Was she spotted cycling by Sutcliffe? Befriended by him? And did she die at his hands? So what do you make of what we've heard today? My first thought is that Judith would have been 58 if she was still alive today, not particularly old. Who knows what she'd have gone on to achieve and how many lives she would have touched. As parents, it is of course our very worst nightmare. Our beautiful, innocent and happy children leave the safety of the house during the day full of excitement for the day ahead with the rest of their lives outstretched before them, only to meet a violent death. And although we try not to torture ourselves, we can't help but wonder just what fear and horror they went through in their last moments. We can only hope that Judith's friends and family managed to find some peace and happiness in their lives following their terrible loss. And we heard about the ludicrous police investigation into Andy Evans. I appreciate it was a while ago, but how many times on this podcast have we seen cases where the case against the prime suspect has all but fallen apart and yet the police and crime prosecution service, no doubt, I understand, under immense pressure to get a positive result, have carried on to trial and the wrong person has gone to jail. In his interview with the Guardian newspaper following his release, Andy Evans tells how he emerged from prison in December 1997, a shattered man. He was completely out of step socially. The art of everyday chat was beyond him. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? It's just everything has changed. He was still understandably bitter, saying, What did I have to show for the last 25 years? Nothing. What had I done? Listen to too much screaming, that's what. Even years later, the nightmares hadn't stopped. He says that sometimes I curl up into a ball and I physically ache. Once more, we can only hope that he was able to continue to move on with his life. And was Judith killed by Peter Sutcliffe? And if so, will he ever confess? Or is there someone else out there who even today knows exactly who killed Judith? And whoever it was, whoever was responsible, will they ever do the decent thing and share the information that they've kept secret for all these years? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please support the show by joining us at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. And joining the Facebook group to discuss all aspects of UK True Crime, you'll be very, very welcome. I'll leave you now to jump online to get your WordPress site from wordpress.com slash UK True Crime. And of course, order your shaving gear from Harry's at harrys.com slash true crime. Come on, you know you want to. In the meantime, I'm off to enjoy the highlights of the Mighty League United's third loss in four games. I always knew it was looking a bit too good to be true. 
So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio from me. And remember, however rubbish the podcast, leaving them a one-star review, it's a bit rubbish as well, isn't it? Be kind and don't take yourself so seriously. Life is much more fun that way. Until next week, cheerio. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. Introducing Batiste's wet-activated and touch-activated dry shampoo. With breakthrough technology that absorbs oil and releases bursts of fragrance whenever you sweat or touch your hair for up to 24 hours, it's the ultimate hair care for girls on the go. Try the newest dry shampoo that's activated by you. Batiste, the future of hair care is here. Buy Batiste dry shampoo online or in store at your nearest retailer. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.